John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 709.2P0115, certificate number 25974. Ledger art. You have a, a pretty cool and interesting art collection in your home. You and your wife have good taste and you you also know what you like our kids don't like our art oh really that's true what do they not like about it eh, it's just oh. not to their taste what would they prefer i mean you have you have a kind of you like representational paintings you we like do. Uh, you think the kids would be into that yeah. we have one that's not representational it's a korean artist who does kind of a trompe l'oeil thing with oh, yeah. different um i like that one it's like mulberry paper that they wrap herbal remedies in but it's kind of a trompe l'oeil thing so you can't tell if it's 2d or 3d with like fake shadows on it i love this artist yeah you showed me a their their uh, coffee table book of their art and we 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 perused it one afternoon yeah the kids hate it really yeah and uh i guess what they don't pay the mortgage yeah exactly uh, do you have any art? I mean, so that's an interesting example. Is that a is that a traditional art form that's been repurposed, or is it a it, it was art made out of a practical? Thing? He's a contemporary artist, and I think he's using maybe it's the equivalent of pop art. Maybe that's not so different from a, a Warhol painting a Brillo box or something, you know, um, to repurpose this newsprint kind of stuff as a as new a, media as a parchment, yeah. Do you have any, um, like, do you have any collection of artifacts? Do you have any Roman coins or anything that would, that that's is not an even, antique, but is a, is a, a an old art Is piece? it even legal to own that stuff? I feel like I'm a... A Roman coin? I feel like the government's going to come busting in like I had dinosaur skulls. You may own a Roman coin. Thank goodness. Yeah. There, uh, there are lots of laws about what, what you can do with... Things that you find, yeah, but uh, but there's also a global market of them. I've never actually had the urge to like sh- shop for that kind of stuff. Like, I don't even know what's accessible to middle class people, and what's accessible to the rich, and what's accessible to the super rich, and what only exists in museums. Maybe because a lot of it is not beautiful. You know, it's gotten to the, you know, the older and more authentic it is, the more likely it is to just look like 
garbage if you don't know what you're looking at. Right. So I'm not like, what would beautify this mantle? I got to have some old shards of pottery. Do you have old historical stuff? What's your oldest thing? Well, you know, I like that stuff. And, I, and you'd be surprised when you go online and, and search. You're absolutely right that the, the, the finest things belong in museums. And then there's like the, the, the super rich people that own really fine things that belong in museums. Because Nicolas Cage is not going to give that dinosaur skull back yeah there's a you know there's a there's art poacher poaching and there's you know, grave robbing and all that and there's a market for it and presumably it's rich people that want some funerary urn on their coffee table it's all bragging rights i guess yeah. or, or i'm um, surely some of those people are are overwhelmed by the beauty of the thing um, but I then you'd have to have scholarly knowledge, I would. think, in most cases. You would, or like such a refined aesthetic sense. I think it's more often that you have a self assessment of your refined uh, <laughs> sense. And so, but you know, that's where you get all these counterfeits that, that end up, uh, that end up baffling people or, you know, or bamboozling people into spending millions of dollars on a thing that isn't a thing. I mean, if there's enough of those, then a thousand years hence, nobody's going to have any idea yeah, sure. what was actually Did real. Is this a Rembrandt or was it by one of his students or was it by a guy in New York City in 2000? Um, but, but for historic artifacts, you know, they, I mean, for hundreds of years, people have been digging things up uh, in just laying in the mud in Rome. And if it's Super beautiful, but if, if it's just another bust of some local, you know, uh, like shop owner, that stuff finds its way onto the open market. And the hardest thing is to authenticate it. Yeah. Um, but you could, if you wanted, have a collection of artifacts and, and um, archaeological finds for surprisingly little. Until you've given it away and now the... Value's going to skyrocket. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, it's a weird market. You know, it's like the market for Judaica. The, some of the incredible pieces of Judaic art are very expensive, but there's a, there's a long tail. But at least there's a, in that case, there's a big um, interest group buying out of, right. you know, historical and theological interest. I don't know what the equivalent of that is for Ancient Rome. I mean, I mafia, think mafia dons. Yeah, maybe. I think I think in into the 1990s or even 2000s, there was a kind of secret market of uh, middle-aged guys who had train sets and uh, and World War II artifacts. A lot of them pretty questionable. Yeah, and uh, it was only the movie American Beauty that revealed this uh, sordid underbelly. That movie told us so much about ourselves. <laughs> it really did, and also about Chris Cooper's Nazi collection. <laughs> But growing up in Alaska, there was... That's a a phrase we often hear on this show. Yeah, growing up in Alaska. Have I mentioned that I... Take a drink every time John says... Grew up in Alaska. Growing up in Alaska. That's going to be my ringtone. It's going to be you saying, growing Growing up up in Alaska. Alaska. Honey, John's calling. Just over and over, except a different one each time, (laughs) like a supercut. Growing up up in Alaska. Um, Alaskan art, and by that... I mean, both art made in and about Alaska and the art that's popular among art consumers in Alaska. Uh, it, it is very interested in uh, Native American art specifically 
and uh, art made from ivory, bone, baleen, art depicting Alaskan scenes. That's all you have available. Well, and you uh, could drive down to the floor 48 and get oil paint, I guess, but mostly it's just driftwood and ivory as far as the eye can see. Well, and I think it's an American regionalism, and this is probably true also in Australia or other places that are, you know, where Europeans had first contact with Aboriginal people. Um, If you go to New Mexico, I bet you the the, uh, upper middle class white residents of New Mexico all have collections of local baskets and carvings. The state flag of New Mexico is like an indigenous design, right? Like yeah. Yeah, you're right. And so in Alaska, and in particular because Alaska was so late to be widely settled by Europeans and there were so many native groups that remained, if not uncontacted, then at least that persisting in, in their traditional ways, that there was a lot of art available and a lot of people who had kind of, if they'd lost the traditions of art making, it was only by a generation or two. You know, the same story in Alaska as all across the Americas, the introduction of Christian and government organizations that tried to eliminate native culture and retrain everybody to be farmers or factory workers or I don't know, you know, um, to, to, to rob them of their language and culture. In Alaska, it just it didn't have ten generations. Uh, it was still it was still um, present in the elders, and so it became a. Um, and this was also you know kind of that mid century period when Alaska became a state. It was also a time in American cultural life where there was a reappraisal of Native American art as a fine art, as a collectible art. Was, was there a, a faddish introduction of uh, Alaskan art the same way that like tiki art became so huge around the time of Hawaii's Vogue or did Hawaii steal all your thunder? Well, it didn't, I, it, it wasn't at all um, global, it didn't, you know, it but, didn't filter down, but extremely local in to Alaska. It was, it was, um, it became uh, in a, in a way, one of the dominant decorative arts of, of, you know, White settlers, white white did, Americans. Did it match the settlers' aesthetic also? Because you know that's a requirement as well. It it can't seem ugly to the newcomer. There has to be something impressive or universal about the about the local art. Well, I mean, you know the the what what you would describe as a the the naivete of it uh, in terms of subject matter, the fact that it was often on ivory. Or you know, local baskets um, made out of Alaskan material really acquitted itself with Alaska's self-image as a place, both on the last front frontier, and also a place with abundant natural resources. You know, jade figures highly in Alaskan art, and of course, raw gold nuggets yeah. also a big part of of the decorative arts there. And, and one of the reasons that I left Alaska as a young artist was that it's you're out of Jade that I ran out of Jade. No, there's a better become a a musician. There's a mountain of Jade in Alaska called Jade mountain. And it's literally a mountain made of Jade. You can just go there and chip away all the Jade Jade you want. So much Jade. if, If you're a resident, but, um, but no, the Alaskan arts are largely, 
decorative. Um, there's not a ton of, there's not a ton of abstract art. It's, um, it's a lot of scenes, right? The, the, it's a bear and it's another bear and it's a, and that's true here in our part bears. of the Northwest as well, that, it that, is. that aesthetic of, um, really kind of boldly stylized animals really kind of matches what people wanted in the 20th century. And it's funny to kind of see it just become a local, a local hotel lobby decor, or even like an, an NFL logo. Basically yeah. the Seahawks logo is kind of, uh, uh, you know, this is now the look of the Northwest is the way these tribes saw the natural world. Yeah. Even in the nineties, I think there were, um, you know, it was a form of Celtic tattoo that you just, a hipster might get before it was understood that that wasn't kosher. Yeah. Um, but also in the Northwest, that was true of a lot of, uh, mid 20th century houses, right? Everyone had, some form of Native American art, you know, uh, the carved boxes or the, or a cloak or a blanket hanging on the wall. At the time before concerns about appropriation, it really reflected well on the owner. Yeah. Like what a, what an open-minded, well-traveled person you must be. And someone that's interested in indigenous art. Yeah. Could speak authoritatively about it. As I talk about my Cowichan sweaters all the time, and those are uh, Native American uh, Northwest um, style of clothing made expressly to sell to mid-century Canadians, right? Like, you know, people from Vancouver that came. And so, you know, my, my interest in them is both from the standpoint of someone growing up in the Northwest who saw that kind of decorative art and thought of it as... Yeah, a thing that 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 married you to the region in a way. Yeah. You're not going to find those anywhere else. But also, I have an uh, an affection for that era. The the level of kitsch fades with time, right? You know, at the time there was something kind of tacky and edgy about pop art. That today, where you know we've seen them go for ten million dollars at auction, we don't have that anymore. We're like, yeah, the the Bende dots are beautiful. That's- yeah, we lose the ironic. Yeah, and I don't think there was ever it was ever ironic to uh, to own this kind of art here. It, it As you say, it did mark you as a connoisseur. And all of that is just an extension of a hundred years before where, you know, Europeans were literally going into villages and chopping down their totem poles in the middle of the night and stealing their grave reliquaries. And it was heathenism. It, yeah. And, and it was also just like the, like, robbing anyone of their cultural heritage. It was part of erasing them. Less able to fight back. And also, you know, recognition that the, it was a kind of ethnographic era too. In the mid 19th century, ethnography was really all the rage and traveling the world to Melanesia and Africa and, and collecting these things again, under the rubric of science and, cultural understanding, but in a very, in a very paternalistic colonialist way. Yeah. But in Alaska, every home had some Native American art and a lot of it was carving and a, most of it was done for the city market. It was a way of, you know, it was a way for, uh, you know, for Inupiaq artists to have something to earn an income. So they carved things for, for, uh, you know, their white audience. Suddenly there's an export. 
And yeah, it's a, even if it's just you're exporting it in the town. Yeah. And there are, there were and are laws um, in America about, and in particular in Alaska, that prohibit anyone from making art from whale or, you know, ivory, like f- skulls, um, all that stuff that would kind of wash up on the shore. Uh, that is, you have to be able to prove that you are Native American in order to sell artwork carved from ivory. This is for uh, more for ecological reasons than cultural ones, I assume. No, it's a it's part of a it's part of like a a, a retroactive attempt to to understand that the sacredness of the materials that and also just that um, that I mean you can. I, uh, l- let me rephrase that. The the law stipulates that you can't misrepresent or misrepresent it as having been native made. I see. Right? You can't say um, you can't commit fraud or make it in the style of. And you so know, it's, it's not just the artist's claims. There's actually certain kinds of representation that might be illegal because you're. It's essentially a, uh, a counterfeit. Yeah, once, a counterfeit. Once, once you make it look like that, exactly. Um, and the in 1990, there was a law, the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, that uh, that instituted a penalty of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and five years in prison for a first time violation of of misrepresenting Native American art. Unfortunately, it is a law that is not enforced with very much engagement. Um, just recently, and I'm talking about this year, a, uh, an art dealer in Alaska by the name of Lee John Shrenok was prosecuted for uh, two decades worth of selling counterfeit art, counterfeit Native American carvings in his shop right in the center of Anchorage. Hmm. Um and there's no question, and there's no question he did it. And the Department of Interior ended up finding, or the U.S. District Court ended up finding him $2,500 and put him on probation. My guess is he made a little more than that over the years. Yeah, a pretty harsh toke. But within the United States and within the last century and a half, Native American art became a... Uh, became an export commodity with, you know, and by export, I mean, from the, from the reservation to the nearest town, you know, and you would see it anywhere you went in the United States, there would often be people on the roadside selling baskets or blankets or something, you know, that was a native craft to people on route 66, you know, um, mom and dad USA driving across the country in a, in a station wagon. But it actually is, that commodification of American art, Native American art, uh, goes all the way back to the 1860s. It was really, uh, yeah. Well, what does that mean? Settlers were already buying and proudly exhibiting Indian art. It wasn't settlers so much as it was um, that you know the East Coast kind of Smithsonian institution mm. grade of. Um, of people that had uh, that again saw it as a sign of their 
education and their appreciation of the American story and the and the uh, and in some ways the nobility of the uh, American Indian and the lost plains and all this stuff. Academics and collectors. Yeah, right. And a lot of it is a product of the period where where the native art, which had always fulfilled an active role in the culture, it wasn't just made frivolously, right? It did, it did like 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 most Aboriginal art, it it fulfilled a purpose. Beautiful, but it's also got to be a basket or a blanket or whatever. Or why are we doing this? Right. Um, that that art was as the as the plains were um like conquered plowed yeah by by the by western migration a lot of the raw materials a lot of the culture that was that the this material the whole framework of the 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 village and the tribe was under siege and was splintering and fragmenting as you know as tribes encountered this you know it, like irresistible onslaught. Yeah, you you don't have time for art in a crisis always. So some of the original art that we when we look at Native American depictions and those early photographs, we see this, you know, this inc- incredible kind of culture represented by um by pictographs and by costumes and it all sort of predates western expansion, but a lot of it is a, is not pre-contact, you know, it's the, the introduction of the horse really changed Native American life. Yeah. And the horse features prominently in, in this sort of but a culture that really was transformed from, from 1500 to, to 1800, 300 years where there wasn't a ton of firsthand experience of people on the plains at watching the culture evolve, but, you know, really like utterly different. I assume not a lot of that pre-contact art even survives, right? We, do we have a good sense of what changed? Very, very little does. Um, because you know, it was, it was made, uh, of natural material and it was, and it was, it had utility, yeah. right? It was not preserved in a, in a safe deposit box somewhere. People love finding arrowheads cause I was, that's the only thing made of the hardest thing they had. Right. Right. Before the introduction of beads, into, um, you know, as a trade item, a lot of the, the work that we see now as beadwork was actually done with porcupine quills and quill work and quill weaving. Um, you know, many of the, many of the things that we think of as that, you know, the, the beaded costumes, the, the, all the garments with all these kind of, you know, decorative, uh, patterns that was all done with quill, with porcupine quills, porcupine quills, because quills could, they, they took dye easily like native dyes or, or natural dyes made out of algae and charcoal and, you know, things that you, uh, berry juice, berry juice, right. And ochre, yeah. um, quills took the dye easily. And then quills are just in and of themselves Great little knitting. You yeah, know, I, I assume they'd be tools. I didn't realize they were also the medium. Yeah, you knit to get knit them together, and it was a, it was so art and the and the manufacture of of handicrafts 
it was very gendered in Native American culture. And the women were responsible for almost all the abstract art, the patterns, the, the uh, leather work, the, the bags, the, um, the decorative costumes, and men focused on representative art, you know, pictures of, of successful hunts. And it was, it was very clear that, you know, most art done by men was kind of uh, heroic art or the women's art seems to be more useful. It seems like for stuff around the house. Yeah. On, on almost all of the, uh, of the stuff that was um, functional yeah. in, in the sense of it being like day to day useful uh, was made by women. And the men's work was more about incredible feats. Would that have like ritual or ceremonial? Yeah. And there was another, uh, a fascinating kind of thing that I think it, it took, um, it took until the 1830s for people back East to fully understand. Um, there was a, there was a, what would you call it? Not a craft work, but a, um, Kraftwerk? A Kraftwerk. No, it was a, it was basically a, a, a form of calendar keeping and, uh, like representation of the passage of time called the, the, um, the winter count. And what it was, was a, and this was kind of universal across like all the tribes of, of the Northern half of North America. It was, a it was a hide, you know, often a Buffalo hide mm -hmm. that two times a year, you know, a, a kind of porcupine quill would be used to represent the passage of a year. And a year was measured from first snowfall to first snowfall the following oh, year. Oh, interesting. Years could be different lengths. Well, yeah, right. I mean, when, when it snowed the first time, that was the beginning of the new year. They're not interested in uh, astronomical signs of the seasons. What really matters is weather. Yeah. That, that determines... And then in the summer, they there was a marking of uh, the sun dance, which presumably happened around the solstice. solstice. So you know it was flexible, but I think probably in a time when the when the climate was you know more or less stable, generally stable. Like uh, growing up, I always thought of the first day of winter being. The first day it snowed. There's often local traditions like that here. Which was like you know, November 1st-ish. Seattle used to get warm right after the 4th of July. Right. Yeah. My mom always said that the first day of summer in, in Seattle was, yeah, it was Bastille Day yeah. or whatever. Um, so these, you know, these winter counts were also kind of the province of men. And the, you could, you could represent really decades yeah, on a would, single high. That would be a, a history. And the, the, the person in charge of maintaining the, the, the count, then there were glyphs and other, um, other symbols along with the markings that would enable you to tell the story of history so that you could say, Oh, well that was, you know, clearly it was this year that, that the big storm happened or, or whatever. So else. you could put in stuff about, the hunt or the chief or whatever. Yeah. They could also appear on there. And that is actually how those things became sort of uh, interpretable by 
Western scholars or by East Coast scholars, by the Smithsonian. Because by the time we got them, the oral traditions that would have undergirded them might be gone or unavailable to us. Yeah, a guy by the name of Garrick Mallory realized that uh, there had been a, a Leonid meteor, meteor shower in 1833, and all of these uh, these winter counts you know, from all across the continent. Yeah, rep- you know, represented it as the the year the stars fell, and so he could then take a look at these winter counts, which you know started always probably in a different year, yeah. and whenever the last hide was full. Yeah, and line them up and and say, oh, now we can see, and we can compare the stories to the to the um, you know the oral stories of the tribe and see you know how how the winter count put actual dates by our reckoning onto these stories. Right. Yeah. So most of the, you know, most of the, the quill work persisted, you know, past the introduction of beads, but you know, beads gradually overtook quill work, but the, the lion's share of like the, the useful leather work, the, the, um, what were called the parfletches, the, the uh, parfletches, yeah, a parfletch is like a saddle bag or a a lot of the um a lot of the luggage, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, was in the form of hide pouches made in the in the shape of like an envelope that were that were made out of elk or most commonly buffalo, and you know the hides were tanned. They were um. They were often they were often tanned with a kind of uh, like a a prickly pear cactus what pomade you know some kind of mush that that would would scour and and make a make a form of parchment right but but thicker so then you could do decorations on top of that you could do decorations on top of it quill work originally and and later bead work but they were. You know, they had geometric patterns and they were used to carry food and seed and, and, you know, any household goods as you, as you move nomadically. Yeah. I guess smaller portable luggage is more important to a nomadic society. You want lots of little pouches. And you're making teepees. Not a big roller bag. There are leggings to use in horsemanship. There are, um, shields that were used in battle. Yeah. And all this stuff was, was, uh, you know, pretty ornately decorated and made out of Buffalo largely. And we're talking about, we're talking about tribes kind of across the plains and, and on both sides, right? The Cheyenne, the Blackfoot, uh, the Arapaho, the Sioux, the Mohawk, like everyone here has a tradition of this kind of handiwork. It's interesting. Because you know, it doesn't make the the Comanche doesn't make your jerky bag any better if it's got cool diamonds on it. But uh, you know, despite having what we would imagine to be kind of a subsistence level lifestyle, they wanted beautiful jerky bags. Well, and one of the things that we can't know is how much the the geometric patterns also were significant, like functional. Like that's how you tell what's in the bag. Yeah, or what, or who the who the people are yeah. that are carrying yeah. right. And I think that a lot of the a lot of the battle stuff, the shields and and so forth, were decorated by men in ways to indicate their prowess in battle. But the work that the women were doing, you know, some of that didn't. I'm sure a lot of the symbolism of it didn't make it into the 
ethnographic record. I mean, it took us a long time to understand what was happening with wampum, what, you know, what it actually, how detailed it was in a, in its, you know, uh, ability to tell stories. And I think we still don't fully understand the knotted rope languages of, of central and South like America. Stuff, yeah. yeah. But then, um, disaster befell the people of the plains in the form of the wholesale slaughter of the buffalo. And then, of course, the other many disasters that befell the residents of the plains, including um, relocation and, and disease yeah, and, and, and uh, destruction, right? Murder. But the actual, uh, the food source went first, right? Well, the food source, and it was also the main raw material. All of this stuff was made out of buffalo hide and, you know, and in the old days, porcupine, but also elk and deer. I mean, these, our people use every part of the porcupine. <laughs> these, uh, these animals were all being decimated. And in fact, in 1874, the last free herd of buffalo uh, was finally destroyed, and it prompted a, a war with uh, with some of the tribes called the Red River War, where um, at the end of the war, and the buffalo spoiler alert did not the free buffalo did not survive the Red River War, but some of the um, or, you know, a lot of the surviving warriors were then captured and sent to prison in Florida, a common place. You know, like a lot of those prisons were back east. It's funny to imagine a time when camps. buffaloes were just pests. You know, the bison yeah. were getting in the way of fencing off ranch land. So yeah. well, you got to take care of those like termites. Well, and it's arguable that in a lot of cases, it was a military campaign to deprive the the uh, yeah, tribes a, of food. It was a war tactic. But what happened was uh, this a combination in the in the period between the Civil War and the 1880s, where um, the buffalo were decimated, the tribes were decimated, and in many cases confined, both to prisons and to um, reservations. And a lot of the – and there began a new, uh, a new movement of assimilation that was based in a lot of like what uh, – enlightenment premises about what the future of the Native American tribes was going to be in the United States, right? There, there was not necessarily a genocidal impulse on the part of everyone – in you know back east there was a lot of sense of but even the benevolent impulse would be like com we, completely assimilation we, we have to educate them and make them white christian, Ameri yeah, christian the, americans uh, basically uh, uh one of the people that figures in our story general richard henry pratt famously said we must kill the indian to make the man Mm. Uh, you know, that's the enlightened, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. I no, guess? no. He meant kill the yes, I Indian know. ways. I know. But right? I like it. the metaphor is still <laughs> murder of Indians, even to be the nice one. Yeah. You know? And he was, you know, he was in, in some ways like, well, yeah, we'll see. He comes along. Ken, I want to talk to you about Squarespace. Oh boy. Is this an intervention? Uh, no, I've been, well, maybe like, uh, it, do you have a Ken Jennings website? I think you do. I do. And you know what? I've actually been thinking about putting some new stuff up there. I feel like it would be a good place to put like some uh, 
some trivia puzzles now that I'm not doing an email anymore. Well, I've been using Squarespace for many years to publish johnroderick.com, and I find it intuitive and uh, and incredibly cool. Like, Because uh, you're not a web programmer no, guy. I'm really not. And I, you're for a bit a, of a rookie. For a long time, I, it was, the barrier to entry of having a cool website was just that I didn't know how to use the tools and wasn't interested in learning. I feel like almost everybody needs a website for something, whether they've just got work they want to show off or, you know, content writing they want to publish, blogging, if there's something they want to sell. And what Squarespace does is Squarespace has these incredible templates created by world-class designers that are just waiting for you to populate them. They have e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online that, you know, it would be impossible to develop on your own. And it looks like you know what you're doing. You get a beautiful professional site in no time. It's optimized for mobile right out of the box, which, you know, I can tell you there are still a lot of websites out there that are terrible on your phone. It looks like they pretty much do everything, including the hosting side. They give you analytics of how your site is doing. They can help you buy domains. They can You can choose over from, uh, from over 2,000 extensions. Optimize your search engine results. Like, it's really a one-stop shop with 24-7 customer service. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And we're encouraging people here at Omnibus to make it. Make it yourself. Easily create a website by yourself. Make it stand out. Stand out with a beautiful website. What you want to do right now, if you are starting up a website, is head to squarespace.com slash omnibus. That'll give you a free trial. Then when you're ready to launch, if you use the offer code omnibus, you will save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. So let me thank you, Squarespace, for hosting my own webpage, johnroderick.com, which I encourage everyone to go to right now. And uh, Squarespace has been a partner with me for over a decade. And thank you for supporting Omnibus and the Omnibus Project. Go to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And then with the offer code Omnibus, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thank you, Squarespace. In that period where the where the Native Americans were still largely practicing their old ways, but were finding there were no more buffalo, there was no more range, um, there was the dawn of a new art form. And at first, it was the result of, you know, in the aftermath of a violent encounter with some you know, cavalry guys or somebody manning a, uh, an outpost, uh, a general store somewhere out on the plains. One of the, the items of raid booty, if a tribe were to attack a wagon train and, you know, and kill everyone and, and take what was left behind was paper for the first time, uh, you know, exposure to this new material. Paper. Of all the things that they were seeing from European settlers, they were into paper. Well, no, they took it all, right? The guns and the food and the Right, but it's interesting. I never would have thought of of paper as making the cut. Well, and right, paper would be maybe not as astonishing as as steel, but if you were a pictographic culture, if if drawing and making art was essential to the way you communicate. And the hides are scarce. 
and there are no more hides. And I guess other places you would think of indigenous art as appearing in, you know, caves and, and you know, rock faces. But on a flat prairie, there's not a lot of natural canvas either, right? Well, and a lot of the... A lot of the utility of that stuff was that it was mobile. You know, as you move, right. you bring the you bring the winter count with you. You yeah. bring the the material with you, and so paper was light, and you had whole volumes of it, and also pencils and crayons, um, writing implements that were, uh, you know, that were kind of pre-made, charcoals, and a lot of that paper was in the form of ledger books. Very, you know, it wasn't typically... Oh, yeah, they weren't transporting blank typing paper across the plains. Yeah, it was, you it know... It was coming because it had stuff on it. Maybe somebody had a diary, but a lot of these forts, you know, they were keeping inventory. That's what the army does. That's what white people do. Accounting. Keep your accounts. And the Indians, the native tribes took the accounting paper? So here were these ledger books, some of them, you know, large full of paper that also were lined and and frequently written upon yeah. with uh, with quill pens saying like well this day we received 40 bags of grain this and much salt pork yeah exactly and so here here was this paper that the tribes in in absence of buffalo hides started to use as uh as record books wow. of their exploits. So it became their ledger as well. That's right. It was it was a ledger when the cavalry had it, and then it became a ledger again when it got reused. And it turned out and the and a lot of the a lot of the art of this period that that we still have, that we still know about, is art done in these ledger books from this time. Because the ledgers often have dates in them. So you can tell and when it got taken. Uh, and w- one of the things that was learned was that drawing these uh, these scenes, and it was typically men that were doing this work now, right? This, this was not abstract it's work. To- yeah, this is this is stories, right? Stories of of battles, also often stories of encounter with the with the army and the and settlers. So depictions of what were known battles, but from the, uh, from the Indian standpoint. Yeah. And the, the drawings themselves were collaborative. So many different people would work on similar stories. You had, you had artists that were really good at drawing horses (laughs) and artists that were really good at drawing faces. Um, that's interesting that a modern day scholar could look and be like, we don't know this guy's name, but he clearly drew the horses here, here, and here. And this other guy is not as good. And he drew, he drew the, the other horse. Yeah. We often do know the artist's name. Oh, interesting. Um, because, How? well, they had glyphs and that represented themselves. And also they were the, this, this period in particular, the young braves, you know, they survived often until the 20th century if they were born in 1860 and they were doing some of this work in 1880. Um, you know, a lot of them lived to 1950s. So by the time the ethnographer came knocking, he was still around. Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a man named Bear with Feathers who was really good at drawing people. And, you know, like White Bird or Red Lance would draw, would draw the horse and then bear with feathers would come in and draw the 
draw the people. It's great that they got kind of rediscovered by name, you know, the way that later happened with people rediscovering, you know, illustrators they liked or poster artists or, you know, Disney comics artists or, you know, all these kind of other niches where eventually the anonymous author came out. Yeah. And it was, it's kind of hard. It's hard to grasp the full breadth of this period of encounter with Europeans, because we think about it as being an experience that the, that the native Americans were having almost exclusively, exclusively with the army as the sharp point of the the spear of this like inexorable wave of settlers that were just coming to take, 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 take. But there's also the, the East coast European intellectual crowd that's trying to, um, you know, that's Christianizing, but also this is the era of science. So you have the first anthropologists, the first, um, ethnologists, the first, I mean, on one hand, people wanting them to play something on a drum for them. And and you've got, you've got phrenologists over here, but you also have quite a few enlightened thinkers. Um, but often enlightened thinkers bound by the customs of their day. And, you know, this, this character, general Richard Henry Pratt, um, he's credited with the first use of the word racism. He coined the word racism as a way of indicting the the oh, he U.S. Was, he wasn't endorsing it? No, he was He wasn't in, like, you know what I'm into. He was protesting what he considered to be like discrimination against the Native Americans on the basis of their race. And was he and he was he was still army and he called this out? Well, he became, you know, and and here's the problem, right? His version of it was was the same as Thomas Jefferson's, which was the goal of this encounter is to settle Native Americans Civilize. and turn yeah. them into farmers and teach them, you know, I don't know how to how to build cars. Um, and so he started what became the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania, and then became a series of Carlisle schools, which were, and the Carlisle schools were the classic institution of you know, forced assimilation. Like these are the places that always turn out to have cemeteries out back. Well, or, and definitely the ones that, that say like, um, yeah, you're, you're no longer allowed to speak your language or practice your English. Now you don't see your family anymore, but there was a recognition that this artwork and in particular, the, the artwork that went in that, you know, they were discovering these ledgers and, and they became, uh, fetish items. Like, oh my God, look at this. This is an incredible among the, the among the white scholars working with the Yeah. They you know, when tribes. when they were discovered, and this is only in the in a decade or two after they were being made for the first time, the Smithsonian Institution was, you know, like um very acquisitive of it and all and a lot of native handicrafts. If you look in the Smithsonian today, I'm sure they have a a much more culturally sensitive display of those items, but in the back, behind the curtain, you're going to find um, that that they were that they were Teddy Roosevelting. You know, they were at the time collecting all, as much of this art as they could, and with from their perspective, right, um, an intention that wasn't to erase, 
an intention. That's the, we're doing the obvious. We're, we're the opposite. We're preserving. We're preserving. It. That's yeah. right. And and it's the you know it's the the British took the Elgin marbles right because the Greeks couldn't be trusted with them. Yeah. It's this feeling that like oh you don't recognize how beautiful your your saddlebags are and the you know the the argument like well those are our saddlebags if you take them we have no way to carry our stuff and the smithsonian's like well that's silly you don't well you don't have a museum and o- often the east coast response was here are some new saddlebags huh. that say you know us government provided saddlebag um so a group of artists young braves that were part of uh that were you know captured as part of the the war, the Red River War. It was discovered in their in their um, captivity that they were using whatever kind of found material they could and doing art in and, in some kind of army prison. Yeah, and so so the sort of Richard Henry Pratt model was, hey, wait, well, let's give them art supplies. And so they were provided with ledger books and 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 ink pens. <laughs> Did they mock up like used looking ledger books? So this is just what you'd have on the plains if you uh, if you burned down a settlement. <laughs> yeah, they were encouraged in doing this work. And um, there was a group in the in the late part of the well, I guess I guess you would say the early part of the twentieth century called the Kiowa Six, who were all young people are forced to attend St. Patrick's mission school in, in Oklahoma. And, um, you know, a, a professor from the university of Oklahoma art department came out there and said, you know, Hey, let, what there, there were two competing schools, right? The, the, there were the art department people that were like, let's give them no art instruction and let them draw what they learned from their families and then that will be the we can see the authentic native art. Yeah. And then there was the other school, which was like, well, let's teach, let's teach perspective and teach, um, you know, I guess modernism, and see, you know, what see what that art is. All of it made with the idea of it being a new way for Native Americans to enter into a capitalist economy. And Oscar Jacobson actually took the art of the Kiowa Six to the first international art exhibition in Prague in 1926, which was a huge hit. Oh, man, Europeans of that era loved the the people of the plains. Even now, you know, even now, Europeans love it. Love their westerns. And so the Kiowa Six, they ended up in the 30s. Their artwork was taken to the the Venice. Their, Their artwork was taken to the Venice Biennale. And again, massive hit. Um, and that began a kind of international art market for traditional Native American art that was now being made by the next generation that had in some ways been forcibly, in many ways, forcibly deprived of their culture. And this was like a last bit of culture that had been imparted to them by their grandfather. I mean, all ledger art, when you think of it, is uh, immediately identifiable as kind of a fusion between the two cultures. You know, you can, right. the fact that it's, you know, written on the back of cavalry or interior department note paper or whatever it is really says, 
this is a record of the encounter. And, you know, if you know more about it, this is what got produced when the actual materials were no longer available due to the ongoing travails of the indigenous people. Right. It's intrinsically located in time and place, and it can only really... It's about the crossover between the two cultures. That's right. In that, it, and because in the the first ledger art was done on ledger paper that was that was that was discovered as a part of a raid or a part of a you know a clash, and then when the when the army and the the ministers and the the next wave and the, and Smithsonian guys with a pince nez arrived they were like oh we have more ledgers here is this a thing you you want like and particularly as they were being increasingly confined on reservations yeah. and in jails hey guys we didn't actually want the ledgers we, we, <laughs> we were having to use the yeah right what we wanted was the buffalo you know we love mac weldon here at omnibus hq we both wear their stuff all the time but let me tell you about Mack Weldon's solution to your wintertime blues. That's right. Mack Weldon's daily wear system, where all the clothes work together, you don't have to think about it. And I personally wear Mack Weldon stuff all the time as a winter layer. The sweatshirts, the sweatpants, they uh, they work kind of as a, I don't know, in the in the Northwest, a perfect layer on top of something else. Put on some pants or a jacket over your Mack Weldon layers. My sister loved my Mack Weldon sweatpants so much that she stole them, and then I stole them back, and then she bought her own Mack Weldon pants. So although they're technically focused on boy fashion, um, they are not exclusive to boys. Mack Weldon's warm knit collection uses your body temperature to keep you warm without the weight. So now that we're in the cold winter time, let me highly recommend Mack Weldon's warm knit collection and underwear as another uh, and super cool fashionable layer for your daily wear system. So check out Mack Weldon for yourself and save 20% on your first order thanks to us at Omnibus. Visit MacWeldon.com slash Omnibus and enter the promo code Omnibus. Again, that's MacWeldon.com slash Omnibus and enter the promo code Omnibus for 20% off. Find your perfect look for this winter. Well, are you like me? Did you come from a childhood where actual drawing paper was scarce? Yeah. Like, do you remember? A- oh, well, my mom worked in computers, so we had the dot matrix printer, you know, reams. Yes. Uh, where, you know, you could... With, with the perforated edges? Yeah, well, and the, all the pages were connected, so you could unfold it and do a seven... You bayou tapestry. Yeah, that's right. We literally made ledger art because my grandpa was a... Sold pet supplies. He was a traveling salesman. And so he had a ton of just accounting... Yeah. You know, the, all the drawing paper at grandma and grandpa's house was just accounting stuff where there was blank on the back. Is that what, is that what the Native Americans were largely doing, using the, un, the unprinted no, the, side? No, they, they would... were drawing right over the top of That's people's funny. accounting. Because the, the accounting paper was accounting on both sides. Plus, it's noise to them, not signal. Yeah, they, that's right. It would be distracting to us, but they just see squiggles. So it's fascinating. You can see also the ledger. Yeah. 
underneath the the painting. Well, that's the, all my childhood art also has uh, pet food sales. Well, and there's the you know there are the other bank. cultures that use ledger art, including the Mennonites. Um, because there's just, you're out there on the planes and you're just repurposing the materials you have, right? If, I mean, if you're in a flat grassy space and you have a ledger, is it a Heath ledger? If you go on eBay right now and you search for ledger art, um, and when we'll get to this in a second, um, if you search for ledger art and you put the, uh, you say price plus shipping highest, Rather than ending soonest yeah. or newly listed, the first two pieces of art you'll find are paintings about Heath Ledger. Is he the Joker? As the Joker in both of them? Does yeah. It have, so you just get Joker memes now if you search for Ledger art. You this get is, Joker memes, and then this is what NFTs have done to our culture. Pretty quickly, you'll find some Native American art, and then we'll go back into Heath Ledger art <laughs> for a long for a long way. Um. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't mention this wonderful artist whose name is his Native American name was his fight, his fight. But he was he was called Jaw by a by a white friend, and that was kind of how he was known. Wow, he was. He it's, was I mean, it's better if it's a Jamaican friend calling you Jaw, calling you Jaw. But I'll settle for a Rastafari. He was born in 1850, and he lived all the way to 1924. He was a Lakota, and he had actually been at Little Bighorn. Wow. So he had, uh, he did ledger art ab- his, about his, history's written by the winners. Yeah. <laughs> he did, you know, he did a uh, little bighorn ledger art. Yeah. You know, he had, um, he had real bona fides and he was a very prolific artist. Well, so th- th- we entered in the, the middle part of the century where most of the ledger artists passed away. Unfortunately, a lot of the, um, well, yeah, the lion's share of the Kiowa six, like maybe five of the six mm-hmm. died of tuberculosis, um, in another wave of, of disease and died young of tuberculosis. One of the Kiowa six was a woman, Lois Smokey, and she made the, f- uh, the fewest number of paintings because she switched to beadwork at a certain point as she got older as, as her craft and her paintings actually have the, they're the, the rarest because most yeah, expensive because they're the scarcest. And I don't think she died of tuberculosis in 1985 in Amadon, North Dakota, somebody was going through the boxes in the back of the courthouse and they found, a a ledger of, of, a full ledger from 1885, now known as the Amadon ledger that had 107 drawings, 87 of which were by his fight. And Do, are they, is it, am I picturing something chronological, like a, like the Bayou tapestry or like a comic strip where often, you know, you'll see time advance across the, across the ledger. So there's a if very, it's this big, there's a very different, um, uh, typically the ledger paintings are they represent scenes and it isn't okay. necessarily chronological and even in the scene things like motion depth and time are represented very individually by different artists like you'll see some sometimes like a horse in motion uh, its progress across the scene will be represented by hoof prints mm. kind of floating in the air there's there are a lot of attempts to show action 
But there's not like a common lexicon. Not of- really. It's, it, it varies, you know, from tribe to tribe or from artist to artist. And so, and, and like a lot of, you know, what you would think of as Aboriginal art, it's uh, like perspective and depth and time are represented in ways that aren't, that's uh, not, not linear Western, not linear, typical, right. Yeah. Um, and as the encounter got deeper, as there was more um, Western education and more, I'm sure people at a, at a, uh, a train depot saying, Hey, you know, white bear, if you, if you put this over there, then it looks like it's further behind, you know, just a little, like we, you see the evolution. Yeah. But the, the discovery of the Amadon ledger kind of, uh, like excited a new, or, you know, a, a, um, there was a new understanding of these as important artifacts, uh, ledger art as a, as a, um, uh, not just an artifact, but a crucial part of the American story, and also during this period uh, in the eighties, a real art world covet item. Oh, so it becomes a shopping spree. And so the ledger got sold, got taken apart, and the context of you know whether or not the the stories were in were arranged linearly, they did have context, right? To taken together. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the drawings were spread far and wide, sold at auction, you know, put in frames, became, um, be, you know, became decorative art on the walls of, of, uh, Taos, New Mexico millionaires. And so it, it was kind of a run on the bank of, of ledger art, which, you know, which, starting then and to this day became, uh, you know, fine art, Native American, or, or, but Old West sort of fine art. But it's kind of a bummer that it immediately gets dismantled. Yeah, a, a real bummer. And, and again, it's the, uh, it's the conflict between the Smithsonian Institution model, which increasingly realized that— It's a text. Keep the corpus together. That's right. And this is an artifact. This belongs in a museum— and whoever found it in the North Dakota uh, uh, courthouse and realized, oh, I could make, you know. How many customers can I? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what it also did was ignite within the, it reignited within the tribes themselves um, an understanding that this was an art form that was a way to kind of reconcile their own post-encounter culture with traditional ways. You know, it's it's a struggle, I think, among Native American artists that they don't want to try and duplicate pre-contact art because that feels as illegitimate to the, their own experience as as it would... It's, it's pastiche. Yeah. It'd be like me trying to write a Victorian novel. Right. I, you know, if I'm a Sioux growing up on a reservation somewhere, I, you know, I've never seen wild buffalo either. Yeah. Um, and so you see a lot of Native American artists really wrestling with modernity as a thing they want to include in their in art based on their experience, but also to incorporate you know traditional elements. And so starting in the '60s, but then really ignited in the '80s, there was a new generation of artists that began to make new ledger art. And one of the things that made it 
interesting was that a lot of uh, artists discovered that you can buy ledgers from 1880 all day. Oh, there's still period ledgers if around. If you go on eBay right now and Google, you know, like 1800s ledgers. Because some flour mill kept the room full of everything. It, it, probably within 10 miles of where we're sitting. I mean, I know in my own library, I have books that were, you know, diaries and whatnot kept by my people in the 1880s that are like, yeah, it's just, they're just recording like just shopping lists. crop yields. Yeah. It's not. And, and so anyway, you can find even now big ledgers, some of them that were never written in, but a lot of them, you know, they have that kind of fading ink and it's just, you know, it's an elegant cursive, but a lot of the contemporary artists actually find these old ledgers as a, as a kind of raw material to me, and they're not represent, they're not misrepresenting the work they're doing now. They're not, not, it's not a counterfeit. No, they're not selling it as something from 1860. It's not, it's not like going back and finding some, you know, uh, old vellum and erasing. Which people do. They'll, yeah. they'll find old paper to sell their fake manuscript. This is a new, it's a new kind of pastiche form. And they incorporate a lot, you know, and you can find artists now uh, working in many different media, photographs and and painting and uh, collage and using ledger art as a jumping off point. And it continues to be kind of relevant in terms of, you know, the conversation, because in a way you're portraying a kind of ghost culture that you're relearning as a part of the uh, kind of 20th century, like reevaluate or, you know, a, 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 an attempt to recapture the dying languages, the, the yeah. culture that's lost a, a, a reappreciation or a new appreciation for what had formerly kind of been dismissed as like grandmother who's sitting over here. I like the reversal of the conflict and the erasure also by like using the, the, the white document as kind of the, the thing that gets overwritten. Right. You know, this fades into the background and what becomes prominent is our tribal and cultural symbols. Sure. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Um, the, one of the, one of the kind of early, um, people in this new format. Oh, and so this is the other interesting thing. As ledger art has become a modern art form, now it is practiced equally by women and men in the tribes. For the first time. Yeah. So there are a lot, a lot of the prominent ledger artists are, uh, are women in the tribes. And one of the early ones was a woman by the name of Marcel, a woman by the name of Marcel Harjo, who is, um, She's from Oklahoma, and she's a Kiowa. And in 1965, she was Miss Indian America. Like it's a beauty pageant. Yeah, for for Native American women. Yeah, do and, they still have Miss Indian America? <laughs> I'm not sure if they do. Um, but she is, um, you know, she became a a pretty prominent and kind of w wonderful painter. And you know, her art is available for sale. Uh, and a lot of this feels like it should be prohibitively expensive, but of course this is an un, kind of a, a, an unknown. You can still get on the ground floor of this, unlike most other art forms. Yeah. She's, you know, still alive and still painting and 
you know, for a thousand dollars or, or, you know, a lot of this art is between a thousand and, or in some cases even less to, you know, between a thousand and 10,000. Um, one of the most prominent ledger artists working today is a man named Harvey Pratt, who in this same period of time was, uh, he joined the Oklahoma police in 1965 and he became a famous forensic artist who pioneered a technique of taking autopsy photos of victims of crime, many of whom had, you know, where the corpse had decayed and he could reconstruct their face uh, in a technique he called soft tissue reconstruction. He could then draw, you know, an artist rendition of the victim. And then that would be the thing that the police would use to, you know, to search for the identity of the victim. And he has, he became a national uh, forensic artist. He worked on Green River Killer and Bundy and all these things. Oh, wow. Doing these, um, these artworks. Reconstructions of the victims. And he ended up, um, he ended up a director. He ended up uh, teaching this technique to other forensic artists. And then at a certain point in retirement, he decided to start doing ledger art. And, you know, uh, he also was pretty famous in the Bigfoot community for doing like Bigfoot art about, I you guess, know, I guess that's where the money is. Well, people would describe their Bigfoot encounters and he would uh, do like a, he's corp- like a police artist of Bigfoot. Yeah. Police artists of Bigfoot. So there, there are a lot of his Bigfoot <laughs> works out there, but he, he very famously then became a ledger artist and his ledger art is extraordinary. And, um, and also available for sale. I feel like I could contribute to ledger art by, um, like not the actual art itself. That would be, I, I don't have the talent and it would be a terrible look, but um, I feel like I could just make some ledgers. Yeah. Like if there are any great native artists out there who are like, we need kind of a, a, like a nerdy white man to make us some good ledgers that we could then put some, some good heroic deeds on. Like, I feel like I would be happy to sit and make the ledgers for them. I want, you know, you could just turn our omnibus notes sideways and paint <laughs> over them and they would be, they'd be even more interesting. We send out omnibus notes as, as uh, perks for Patreon subscribers. We autograph yeah. them and send them on. But yeah, I would love to see somebody just paint over them. Paint well, over them. We have some great artists that are fans of the show. Maybe we should send them some, some omnibus notes and have them paint over them. I learned about, um, about ledger art because I have a friend who, and I was in their office the other day, my friend Nate, and he had this wonderful, very large piece of native American art on the wall. And as I looked at it closely, I saw that it was painted over a, a ledger from the 1860s and, and the leather, you know, the ledger says at the top, like U S Bureau of reclamation, Indian board ledger of, you know, so it, it has, it has a, you know, an embossed letterhead. What is this? And I said, what, are, what am I looking at? You know? And he said, oh, it's a, it's a contemporary artist by the name of Terrence Gardipi. And he became aware of the, of ledger art at some point in his own life and was like, you know, I love, it's just, it's so evocative. There's probably more post ledger art now than there was actual period ledger. I mean, and well, and actual ledger art is now a museum quality 
thing to, to find to be an eccentric billionaire. Now. Yeah, it's very it's very expensive, and it's very you know in a way somewhat questionable that you would that you would have it right. Um, especially you know given these situations where like a book was split up, yeah, split it up, desecrated and, maybe. But um, but it is you know it is something that uh, that's available to people now as a as a what a a revisionist art form, but in a kind of positive way, like a like a uh, a reimagining. And that concludes Ledger Art, entry seven zero nine dot two p zero one one five, certificate number two five nine seven four in. The Omnibus. Now, the boring accounting of our time is social media posting. Um, if you would like to paint over John's and my social media posts in your far distant era, you can find them archived at The Omnibus Project. Print them out. Paint over them. At Ken Jennings, at John Roderick. I mean, that's really, it's going to be better than NFTs. Just print out a tweet and wa- do some watercolors. You don't want, it doesn't need to be a monkey wearing sunglasses. Print out a tweet. Paint over it. This is what Mr. Rogers sings as he's doing it in heaven. <laughs> uh, you could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, and then you could, of course, print that out and paint your heroic deeds on top of it. Right. You can support the show and we will send you our notes and you can paint over them. And then what? Sell them? Send them back? If they sell them, would that be... Appropriation? Yeah. That's not a cultural good. There's no shortage of... Uh, uh, of slapdash podcast notes by middle-aged white people. Are you sure, though? I think. I, do, I don't know. Do other people... Is other it people, Welsh art? May, there you go. Part of the Welsh, Welsh diaspora? No, I just wonder if uh, other podcasts are quite as slapdash as we are. I think it's our slapdashness that sets us apart. If you want to send over your um, grandpa's accounting ledgers... Uh, for us to paint on, you can send that to the Omnibus Project, PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline, Washington nine eight one five five. We just got what did we get today? Oh, a Christmas card from the Donahues. Thank you, Thanks, the Don- Donahues. The Donahues. It appears they they have posted with their kids maybe inside a claw machine. Whoa! Uh, you know everybody. I correct me if I'm wrong. Did you did, was this true? I used to imagine. A situation where I had a room full of pillows. Did you imagine a room full of pillows? As a kind of thing that if you were rich one day, I'm talking about as a kid, if you were rich one day, would you get a room full of pillows? I did blanket forts. And I I think I imagined, I think I was aware that ballrooms were like a cool thing at places my family would never yeah, pay to take us to. They didn't have those when I was a kid. But I n- I don't I never thought of the pillow thing. I was so into a room full of pillows as an idea and I was talking to my daughter the other day and she was like uh, showing me her design for the house she was going to build when she was you know when she was uh, grown up. Yeah. And it had a room full of pillows <laughs> and I was like Room full of pillows. There must be a chromosome. Where did you hear about this? And she was like, well, duh, it's so obvious. If you could, wouldn't you have a room full of pillows? It's just proof that American kids like to be in bed. Yes. American Uh, grownups do. Oh, this is nice. Matthew sent us a copy of his new book called North American Maps for Curious Minds. Oh, that's for us. And it looks like it's very much in the, it kind of seems like even the, the packaging and the trade dress is kind of designed to look like a 
the Gen X era children's book or textbook. Let me see. Um, but the maps inside are very much internet era. Hold it up. Stop they, hiding it behind your Dell computer. And they are very cool. Here, oh, that's cool. Here's a map of things that fall on New Year's Eve in North America, whether it's a, a Pac-Man, a pineapple, or a possum. Or my uncle. Here's a map of, uh, of Groundhog Day predictions. Here's a map of U.S. states by their highest ranking... Highest paid public employee. Oh, this is cool. Which is almost always, you know who the highest paid... It's a sports person from the college. It's almost always the football coach, yes. These are great maps. Oh, the first country you will reach if you swim west or east from various points. Okay. Do you know what, if you swim swim due west from Seattle, do you know what country you hit? Russia. That is correct. Kamchatka. it's, It's Russia almost everywhere from, what is that, the Strait of Georgia down to... Roughly Grant's Pass. Uh-huh. And <laughs> then after that, is it Japan? It's Japan, then all the way almost to Baja. What? It's Japan? Isn't that crazy? Because I guess it's such a... It's, it's, it's a long so archipelago, long. baby. And then at Baja, what happens? There's a short gap of where you hit Taiwan. Uh, and then there's a series of stripes where you'll hit Hawaii or the Philippines. Various. This map is now one of the Whoa. most... Just check that out. Give me that. So thank you, Matt. Check out uh, his North American Maps for Curious Minds. Wow, that's so cool. That and then is pretty cool. It's so weird that on the East Coast, Scotland is so high up. It's like Hudson Bay high. Yeah, there's no way to hit Scotland. And even the even Wales is super up in Newfoundland. Like Maine is like France, Morocco. like Southern <laughs> France, right? And then, uh, then uh, Vermont, New Hampshire is Spain. And Portugal goes all the way to Virginia Beach. Wow. It and also, then it's Algeria starts in, in North, North also, Carolina. It also shows the kind of the America centrism of not realizing how large small foreign countries are compared to large U.S. states. Yeah. So, so crazy. Look at that. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, you could also find your fellow futurelings talking about things even weirder than this by looking for their mess, uh, their uh, fora on Facebook and Reddit and Discord and whatnot. And do give to the Patreon. Uh, it keeps the show going. Patreon.com slash Omnibus Project is where you should go right now if you think, let's say you've caught up on Omnibus. You wish you had 15 to 20. No, how many? How many new shows? 15 to 20 new shows. Yeah would be available to you right now if you donated to the Patreon because we oh, do 20, a, 20 at least. It's 20. We do a monthly addenda show. Yeah. And we've now been doing it for well over a year. Yeah. Well, the, and the addenda shows are great. They're fun. A lot of people write in and tell us that we were wrong or that we are well, that we were right, but actually and then Ken just shoots them down one after another. And we never get letters from people who are like, I don't listen to the addenda shows and that's working out great for me. Nope. I am, I'm a happy, fulfilled person not having heard them. Nope. The letters pour in from addenda listeners and they're always extremely complimentary of me and my shows. <laughs> if you're a completist <sighs> who's wishing you uh, had more Omnibus to listen to, go to patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. Basically, you could flip a switch and give yourself 20 new shows today. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. Whew! If you can even call it that. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.